Aqua lads and aqua lasses, welcome to the latest edition of Starman, coming at you live via tape somehow during the Independence Day weekend time frame here in the States. Could I be any more vague? Well, that's what happens when you don't know what day you're going to drop your latest podcast, but you know it's going to be sometime around a holiday or a certain date that you want to reference. But I am Johnny C, and we are here with our f- hour, not our. Why did that's such a bad habit that I have as a person and as a podcaster? I know that I want to say our, but I sometimes say our because it's uh, my mind working quicker than my mouth. And for that, folks, I apologize. But I'm not going to dare go back and edit and splice it out. That would be too much work. And since uh, we're already come to this place. Let's weep in collective awe because it is indeed our last edition of Starman that covers negative one and a half rated star matches. That's what we do here on Starman. We put the worst matches in the history of our sport on trial. We use Dave Meltzer's star rankings to do so. And as of now, there are three episodes in the back catalog that cover Dave's negative one and a half star matches. We've broken it up into chunks so it wouldn't be a massively long, like, five hour listen, because who the fuck wants to listen to that? You lose your place, you download, you re download your favorite app that tracks your podcast, and it doesn't have any of your bookmarks there, and you just want to cry. And rather than re listen to anything that I've already talked about, you just hit nope. And you don't hear the conclusion. But you can't come this far and not hear the ending. And speaking of coming this far, not only are we far on the list, folks, but we're going to be jumping quite a bit into the future. Before I get into that, in case this is anyone's first episode, to be serious for a moment, channeling legendary year 2000 WCW superstar Lance Storm, What we do here, like I said, is we're taking the worst matches of all time. We're putting them on trial. Before each match, I'll try to give you as much context as I can as to what we're going to be witnessing. But then it's all about the evidence and the evidence only. I will report to you what I've witnessed while watching the match. And I will try to reach a fair and balanced... Yuck. Makes me want to throw up every time I say that. A fair and balanced outcome from an impartial jury as to whether or not the match in question is guilty or not guilty of receiving this star ranking from Meltzer. And like I said, we're deep into the future, but somehow, some way, folks, this is our, let's see here, third match, I think, emanating from the Joe Lewis Arena. What is it about these poor fans in Detroit? They just constantly get fed shit. And since we are in the future, 2005, well, we know it's not going to be ECW or WCW. And I would imagine uh, we know it's not Impact because they're not in Orlando, Florida. And it's Meltzer's List, so we know it's not anything from like Ring of Honor or New Japan or anything like that. It is indeed World Wrestling Entertainment. Emphasis on the E because it's November 27th. 2005, like I mentioned, from the Joe Louis Arena. It's the Survivor Series 2005. A battle for brand supremacy, if you will. This match in question that we're going to be trying is indeed billed as a general manager versus general manager match. It's none other than SmackDown general manager Teddy Long versus Raw general manager Eric 
Bischoff, and I'm going to say this now because it's in my head since I said Teddy Long, and if I don't purge it, it's going to become a tick or something like that due to my overwhelming Tourette's. So, it's a Mac Militant. I just had to get that Teddy Long theme song stuck out of my head. Oh, and just so y'all know, when I was singing the Mac Militant and making those sounds, I was doing a movement with my hands as if I was pushing something forward that's tiny in front of me. Because you can't hear Teddy Long's theme song or think about Teddy Long without imitating the man. I will give him that. Became somewhat of a caricature of a character, but by God, he's a legend. I mean, these guys both are. Do not get me wrong. Um, but Teddy Long is such a fun character to play with, and I think this match will illustrate that. So let's let's start with some context. I jokingly said it's the battle for brand supremacy, but that is a large portion of this match, okay? It is billed as general manager versus general manager, and uh, the whole concept of this Survivor Series is Raw versus SmackDown. I didn't watch any of their matches, but that's what I'm gathering from it, okay? Bischoff comes down to the ring in all black. He's got a black karate gi with his black belt, and it's fitting as his song is sort of a parody of Back in Black from by ACDC. Uh, there are brand representatives everywhere for this match. For example, uh, Lillian Garcia announces Eric Bischoff down to the ring, and then Tony Chimmel announces his opponent. There are two referees in the ring, uh, referee Jimmy Corderas and I think referee Mike Doan, Jimmy representing SmackDown and Mike Doan representing Raw. So, okay, uh, definitely pushing this thing here. To cap it off on commentary, we've got Michael Cole from SmackDown and Jonathan Coachman from Raw. And just, ew, what an awful announced team. I can't stand it. One of the reasons I don't watch WrestleMania 24 that often is I hate them. Not as individuals or as actual people, but as an announced duo. Teddy Long comes out and he's dressed like he's going to the gym. Much like Eric in All Black, you would think that maybe these guys would go to represent their colors. Maybe by Eric having a red gi or a red undershirt under his black gi. I mean, come on, it is the battle for brand supremacy. But Teddy Long's dressed like he's a dad going to the gym. He's a black SmackDown tee tucked into uh, black uh, workout pants. And he's seconded by Carson Palmer. Now, you might say, Johnny C, that's a joke that's not funny. Or you might say, that's one of those ad-libs that you pretend to do when you're really trying to make a joke. But folks, I did quickly realize, as the announcer said its name, that the UPN brand representative, that, or network executive, that's with Teddy Long is indeed named Palmer Cannon. But goddammit, my note said Carson Palmer. Because, I guess, growing up in the Cincinnati area, uh, Carson Palmer was, I believe, a quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals. And my gut instinct was to write Carson Palmer. And damn it, how many people or characters that you encounter in your everyday life have the, have the word Palmer in their name? Not that many. And considering that Palmer Cannon is not an important character in the history of our sport, I think it's pretty understandable that I wrote Carson Palmer and meant Palmer Cannon. And I can't promise you which name I will call him by when the evidence start. So, just put that in your, in your skull, alright? Michael Cole is super annoying on commentary, and he's not even in the heel phases yet. But he's talking a whole bunch of shit and being super annoying to Coach, and Coach is annoying as well, but that's not going to influence the evidence. I'm just putting it out there to let you know what it feels like to watch this match. Now, at this moment, the bell rings, so let's get order in the court for the case of Teddy Long versus Eric Bischoff. Now, remember, folks, during the evidence phase of the trial... 
I'm not going to be like, here's something good, here's something bad. I will just try to use my natural inflection to indicate to you if it's positive or negative evidence. And some of the fun that I've started to learn about this is maybe sometimes evidence wavers from person to person. So maybe you put your own spin on it, but you don't get to vote in the end because, after all, podcasts are not an interactive experience. So... Both men start strong, with Teddy climbing the turnbuckle to taunt, and Eric doing a spin kick that misses. And I'm not sure if it's a taunt or if it's part of the match, but it was entertaining to watch, and I can't explain why. Now, I speaking of entertaining, I am so glad that I ad-libbed and explained to you all the Teddy Long hand press dance movements that I did when I sang his song and I'm now doing so no one can see it. But it's such a big part of this match because Teddy Long has incorporated those hand press dance movements into his ring presentation, which means he's at least portraying the same character in a match that he shouldn't be in because he's not a wrestler, uh, the character that is, and he's incorporating that character into his match presentation. And for that, I actually give him a round of applause. Eric runs at Teddy, but Teddy dodges in a somewhat athletic maneuver. So we're starting off pretty good here. Now, Eric wastes time being angry about Teddy missing this. And normally, I wouldn't give a shit. Whatever, he's a bad guy character, he's pissed off, it doesn't matter. But here's the thing, okay? So when Eric runs at Teddy and Teddy dodges, this puts uh, Teddy's in the turnbuckle. And he jumps out of the way, which means Eric is facing the audience with his body like touch like with his nipples if you will touching the turnbuckles so his back is completely turned from the teddy long character all right and he's doing this for a real long time looking like oh i'm pissed off that i missed and frankly i'm a little embarrassed that teddy long moved out of the way but here's why this in my opinion is really bad and evidence to the con- to the you know to the point that this might be a negative match eric shouldn't do that because his opponent is right behind him and teddy long just stands there and doesn't take advantage of the situation with his opponent having his back turned objection whoa whoa already all right counselor what's your objection if you will recall Earlier, Eric Bischoff did a back spin kick, indicating his kicks are lethal when facing his opponent and when turned from his opponent. So perhaps this moment in the match is actually storytelling. Eric is trying to bait Teddy in for a reverse kick, and Teddy is smart enough to know not to go in after him because of the potential of the reverse kick. Holy shit! Objection sustained? Well, all right. Now, when Eric does turn around, finally, Teddy Long indicating that perhaps he's outsmarted him, is taunting the Bister, which, yes, I just called him the Bister, by doing a crane kick position with his with his arms and knees. If you're not familiar with the crane kick position, that means you've never seen The Karate Kid or one of its many sequels and or television shows, and I just don't have anything for you, and I don't know what's gone wrong in your life, but try to rectify that as soon as possible. Eventually, there is more physical contact when Eric takes off his black belt and wraps it around Teddy to choke him. Now, this is negative because, (laughs) which I promised I wouldn't say, but I want to make it very clear it's negative. Because when Eric wraps the belt around him and starts choking him, Teddy Long takes a bump (laughs) from being choked. (laughs) Now... Carson Palmer ends up getting involved and takes one of those vicious reverse back kicks that I talked about, and he gets kicked off the apron by Bischoff. Now, 
we do go back to more choking after this, unfortunately. And I am usually in favor of matches and the presentation of matches, trying to switch things up every once in a while. But having two referees in the ring trying to admonish Bischoff when he's doing these chokes, and it's kind of like the ring looks very full. Like, even though the two refs are wearing ref shirts and I see the two competitors, it makes me feel like someone's interfering in the match that I'm watching, but the refs don't care. But then I realize one of the people that's quote-unquote interfering is one of the referees. And, And I know that sounds strange, but my brain is having problems with watching a singles match with four people in the ring. All right? Um... So that's a problem for me. And it appears that Detroit also has a problem because they uh, begin a very loud, boring chant as these chokes continue. Now, (laughs) one thing I will say in the positive is that Teddy Long's selling of this sleeper slash chokehold that he's in has to be seen to be believed. Because have you ever seen that classic episode of The Simpsons where Bart and Lisa, I think, play hockey against one another? And the Homer tells them they can't get into any more fights. And Bart's like, well, you know what? I'm going to stand over here and swing my arms. And if you happen to get in my way, well, that's just because I'm swinging my arms. I'm not actively fighting you. And then Lisa does the same thing. So Teddy Long selling that he's in danger of being put to sleep is basically Bart Simpson waving his arms up and down in a non-fighting position. Because it's just... A very, very loud way of him getting his point across. I realize he's not a professional sports entertainer. But again, I and this may be me, I'm just I'm entertained by this. I can't I can't tell you why. Well, I've tried to tell you why, but I don't know if you could possibly feel the same. Uh the coach and this, you know, is just what it is, but I, I had to mention it. He's making fun of Teddy Long by being like, Look at him, he's asleep on the job. Which I thought was kind of funny. But again, can't that particular jab cannot influence my position. Now, you want to talk about influencing my position, for Christ's sakes. The referees are distracted by Carson Palmer, both of them. I don't know why it takes two referees to get an aged NFL quarterback down from the apron, but it does. And Teddy Long channels perennial Johnny C favorite and favorite of the Aqua Cave, Ernest the Cap Miller. Legendary year 2000 WCW competitor who eventually becomes the commissioner of the WCW and is ridiculously entertaining. Now, the cat is known for sometimes using his red shoes as a weapon and not when they're attached to his feet, just using them as a weapon independent of attachment to feet and beating the shit out of people with it. So Teddy Long channels the cat by removing his own right shoe and starting to strike Eric Bischoff with it in the skull. (laughs) I just really enjoyed that. This causes a break, but Eric, well, he Bischoff's up, if that makes sense, like a Hulk up. It starts blocking the shoe and strikes back, but the strikes are poor, Uh, including what I generously call a karate throat strike. That's a karate throat strike there, Tony. That's a Mark Madden saying karate as only he can say it. Now... We were having a little bit of fun. The choke was kind of long and boring. Now, as if to signify that any goodwill that this match gave us is dead, the fucking boogeyman arrives. Now, here's here's what I really want to signify, okay? And, I, and the evidence that the characters in the ring give me is zero, okay? 
so I'm going to have to lean into the announcers here to perhaps give me some evidence as to whether or not I can weigh in favor of this boogeyman appearance or not. The boogeyman, the boogeyman is spoken of on commentary, but there is no reason given why the boogeyman would interfere in this match. And Eric Bischoff does the thing where he's watching the aisle, waiting for the boogeyman to show up, and then he backs up and slowly turns around and realizes that the boogeyman was behind me the whole time. He takes a very slow and very safe pump handle slam from the boogeyman, and it's one, two, three. Now, I do give Teddy a little bit of credit here because as he's victorious, he's still selling the throat. While he's pump dancing with his hands in the middle of the ring, he'll pump dance and be like, oh, my throat, player. And I think that's good character work again. Now, what I was talking about with the boogeyman is there's no context given to why he's here. So is he just overflowing with SmackDown brand loyalty? Um, because that that honestly is what's going to you know cause the verdict to be rendered. Because I've got two non-competitors in the ring, and I don't expect much out of them. And I'm hilariously entertained by the nonsense. So... Really, the finish is kind of the make or break. And if it would have been like, I don't know, someone who's always been on SmackDown or Carson Palmer interfering would have even made sense. But the Boogeyman is non, um, at least to my knowledge, because I've only got to go by the evidence. Teddy Long's not like, do a Boogeyman, that's what I paid you for. And Michael Cole's not like, the Boogeyman who promised Theodore Long he'd save him. Like, there's no reason here. So it just seems like an excuse to add a shitty character into a shitty match. Almost as if they're punishing the two combatants by making the boogeyman appear in their match. And for that reason, even though I had a lot of fun and want to say you could do a lot worse than watching this match, because of a nonsensical finish, I am forced to render my first verdict of the episode as guilty for Eric Bischoff and Teddy Long by having a finish that just didn't make any sense given the context of anything we'd seen. It doesn't make me happy, but fair is fair. Making me giggle does not make up for having a nonsensical, shitty ending. And I think that guilty verdict makes sense. Moving ever forward, we will attempt to make sense of our next contest, which is indeed slightly a bit into the future, It's the Royal Rumble 2006, January 29th, 2006 to be precise, in the American Airlines Arena in Miami, Florida. This, I believe, is the Rumble that uh, Ray wins, if I'm not mistaken, with uh, Triple H or Randy Orton. I can't remember who's in there at the end with him. But WrestleMania 22 is not too far into the future, and will feature the legendary censored match between Mickie James and Trish Stratus. So it's only fitting, at the Royal Rumble, we try the case of Mickey James versus Ashley, featuring special guest referee Trish Stratus. A little bit of context here, folks. As Trish is about to make her entrance as the special guest referee, Mickey tells Trish, straight up, I love you. And we are left to ponder what that could possibly mean. Mickey James has an overexcited entrance, and it just really cracks me up. Ashley is the 2005 Diva Search winner, and it's January 2006, so that means she hasn't had much training. So I'm if I, if I end up mocking her performance in this match, folks, I'm mocking the fact that they would put her out here 
without properly training or preparing her, because that is not a wise thing to do with anyone. But she is in there with two legends, so can they help her out, prop her up, and carry her through this thing? The bell rings, so let's find out. Now, the ladies start this match with a lockup, and I don't know if I've ever seen this before, but they both go down to the ground, still in a lock, uh, lockup position, and they roll out the ring, still locked up, together. And it looks really smooth, and it's very well done. So good for them. Eventually, when the match proper gets rolling and rocking, or rocking and rolling, I guess, Ashley's offense is consistently based around one move. Armbar! Which is something of a consistency that we're starting to pick up on here in Starman. Lots of arm bars in these uh, Meltzer negative one and a half star matches. Perhaps that's why legendary sports entertainer Chris Jericho put so much emphasis on it when listing all the holds he is a master of. Now, Mickey is doing everything she can to sell this arm bar based offense, so good for her. And when Mickey gets on offense, she does, speaking of Chris Jericho, do a really cool half crab, but it's like a lion tamer variant because she, it, it, you know the legs are up high and uh, you know I don't I can't I don't know that I can explain the visual differences between the lion tamer and the boss and crab. You all know it. And to put emphasis on the pain that she's inflicting on Ashley, Mickey digs her knee into Ashley's back while performing this single leg lion tamer. And I'm pretty impressed by that. It looks good. And on the outside, Mickey fakes throwing Ashley into the ring because Trish is all like, get her back in the ring, get her back in the ring, playing off of the whole Trish-trained Ashley thing that they're going into. But Mickey James straight up deadlifts Ashley and rams her sternum first into the post. So this is kind of a one-sided affair with Mickey just owning this thing. And good for her. Now, Mickey, while back in the ring, hits a perfect plex. And the script calls for a two count, and I don't necessarily think that Ashley kicks out so much as Mickey just lets go of the hold, uh, so they don't fuck up, but that is kind of a fuck up if you think about it. Mickey goes for the chick kick, so Ashley can catch her leg. So the spot is Mickey goes for the kick, Ashley catches it, and then we move on to the next scripted segment. However, as Mickey goes to kick, she has to stop after she's begun lifting her leg, because Ashley has decided to kick. And after Mickey takes this Ashley kick, Mickey immediately stops selling and just does the kick spot that they had planned. So, yeah, I don't... I mean, it's not a huge thing, but it's like very clear as day that Mickey needed to kick... And after she gets hit, she just does the spot she needed to do. I don't want to dive any further into it. I think it's explanatory. Ashley's strikes are very bad. And I feel bad that Mickey has to sell them. And then Ashley starts doing the hair whip pull, hair pull whips. You know, where they, Ashley grabs Mickey's hair and then tosses her. And here's the thing. The selling to toss ratio is very one-sided. Mickey is sort of selling these things as if, like, Andre the Giant is throwing her, and Ashley is barely selling the fact that she is throwing her, so it's a little lopsided. Ashley goes for a crucifix pin attempt. It gets two, so she gets a little angry that it was only a two count, and she mounts Mickey to throw mounted punches. However, I can safely say, folks, these are the worst mounted punches in the history of our sport. Ashley then spears Mickey James into the corner, 
but it's barely a spear. There's no wrap. It's all shoulder. So I don't know that we could technically technically call it a spear. She then mounts Mickey in the turnbuckle so she can do the 10 punches and the crowd can count along. However, Mickey counters with a very, very vicious-looking powerbomb that Ashley was either not ready for or not trained to take because this powerbomb leads right into the pinning scenario. And Ashley's shoulders are not down on the mat so Trish can count three. And I can't tell if it's because she's in pain and rolling around on the apron or if she's rolling around because she doesn't realize this is the finish or that she needs to keep her shoulders down. Mickey does hold her down, though, because she's the pro, and we get one, two, three. So I think the jury has reached a verdict on this one. It's pretty easy and uh, I think clear to see. This is an absolute one-sided affair. Even more so in our last episode when we talked about Saturn and Kendall Wyndham, okay? So in that match, Kendall Wyndham was the heel and was responsible for the pace of the match. And whenever he was on offense, it was very methodical, very 1980s, like, wrestling challenge type of match. And when Saturn was on offense, there was a lot of energy, and he was clearly game and ready to go. Now, this is kind of the opposite. Well, it's not the opposite of that. It's similar in a way that when Mickey is in control, we're having a good match and a fun time. When Ashley's in control or asked to do things, it's not that she's calling bad spots. is She's just not prepared to be in this spot. And I don't hold that against her because, you know, she, it's not exactly like she put her booked herself into this match. But unfortunately, the one-sidedness leads to a very clear guilty verdict because Ashley is responsible for at least 50% of the offense of this match, and that's too much given her rookie status. And it just doesn't look good. It doesn't come across well. Mickey and Trish are doing what they can, and I don't want to make it sound like this was... Well, (laughs) here I am. I was going to say, it's not bad. You know what, guys? It's guilty, but there I have watched worse matches on the history of this show. I want to make that very clear. All right? Anywho... We're going to go just a little bit further into the future for the very last negative one and a half star match. Oh, I weep. And folks, we're going out not with a weeping whimper, but with a bang. Because it is SummerSlam 2007. We are in East Rutherford, New Jersey at the Continental Airlines Arena. And it's August 26th for the case of the World Heavyweight Championship match, Dave versus the greatness that's right batista versus the great kali now not a whole lot of context here but thank god i i unpaused the video feed to hear michael cole say this sentence verbatim the story is as straightforward as you can get batista must avoid the kali vice grip and that's your context folks dave's the challenger the great kali has his translator with him dave walks alone and uh, the bell rings. <laughs> I wish I could give you more, folks, but don't worry. I'm only giving you what they're giving me. And uh, that will become very abundantly clear here. So, let's start the proceedings. Uh, Dave Batista came down to the ring all jacked up and look, looking like he was ready to murder a god. And when the bell rings, we start with a lockup. Thus ruining all the Dave-related goodness that I'd gotten from the entrance. Now... 
Kali backs Dave into the corner and punches him repeatedly, and Dave sells this hilariously by trying to walk out of the turnbuckle and basically taking a flare flop. So if you ever wanted to see Dave Batista do a flare flop, this is your moment. About two minutes in, and I've realized that the only offensive maneuvers in the match have been great Kali punches and great Kali clotheslines. Eventually, about a minute later, a Kali chop, you know the you know the what I'm talking about, fans, uh, knocks Dave straight on his back, and the great Kali goes for the cover by just standing on Dave with one foot. And while this is really not impressive or anything of note, I will say it's decent enough character work from the great Kali. He's either in character, knowing that the great Kali character thinks he's a dominant beast that has no respect for Dave Batista, or too lazy to get down and lay on the man. I'm not quite sure, and I doubt I'll ever know. We transition to the cornerstone of this match, a nerve lock on the trapezius muscles. Now, I will say this. Mr. Dave has very large trapezius muscles, and I imagine if someone were to actually do this to him in real life and he was unable to fight them off, it might hurt. So good on them. However, it's the most boring fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, folks, I try not to reach my verdict until the bell rings for the conclusion of the match, but what I'm going to describe to you is the exact moment in this match where I knew, spoiler alert, I was going to find it guilty. So they're in the center of the ring, facing the hard camera. Dave is facing the hard camera, and Kali is facing the hard camera, so you can see their faces. And this trapezius vice grip is being held in place. Kali decides to let go of the vice grip and Irish whip Dave into the ropes. Kali has chosen to Irish whip Dave into the hard camera side rope, so the rope they're both facing. Kali Irish whips Dave by pushing him forward. Dave, still facing the camera, takes the Irish whip and sort of crouches and like leans forward against it like you do when you take an Irish whip with your back facing to gain, you know, momentum going forward. He does this facing forward and then Irish whips himself backwards. And it just doesn't make any fucking sense at all. And he, he Irish whips himself and walks backwards right into the vice grip. Uh, Michael Cole compares the trapezius nerve hold motion that Kali is making to smashing dough into the form of a pizza. We get more nerve hold. One minute later, nerve hold. Five minutes into the match, still nerve hold. The Kali vice grip is attempted but countered with a spine buster. Actually looked kind of cool. Dave goes to the Dave bomb. No. Countered. Kali hits the Kali bomb, which is what they called it. I'm not making that up. Gets a two count. The translator throws in a chair. Kali hits Dave with the chair. The referee sees this. Disqualification. Guilty, 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 guilty as fuck. So boring. One of the worst things I've ever sat through. Maybe the easiest one ever. However... I am not willing to determine it the worst negative one and a half star match. Um, well, why don't we do this then? Let, it, it, it's guilty as fuck, it, but it's not the worst match we've covered. All right? It sounds like it. But now that we've completed this cycle of negative one and a half star matches, I'm, I'm clearly ready to say Dave and the Great Khali is the second worst match I watched. But 
looking back at Wikipedia and having experienced it, it's about six and a half minutes long, five of which is nerve lock, but you do get that hilarious Irish whip uh, sequence. But it doesn't save it or anything like that. It's still guilty as fuck. But the absolute... Worst of the negative one and a half star crop matches, unequivocally, officially, the Macho Man Randy Savage versus Hollywood Hulk Hogan in the cage from Uncensored because it's 20 minutes long and it's boring as fuck, which is the most grievous of all offenses. You botch a move, it happens. You forget you're the babyface or the heel. Well, I suppose that happens. But if you're entertaining me, I'm willing to let something slide. But just being outright boring, you're going to lose every time. And speaking of losing every time, we are going to press on ever forward to matches that are even worse than these. Uh, The next time we come at you on Starman here in the Aqua Cave, we are going to start covering the negative two-star ranked matches. And folks, I could not be more excited I love watching these things because, number one, they're not always long. Uh, They're a lot of fun. And uh, I don't have to take a shit ton of notes, which is easy for me. And we get to just come on board, do the show, and have a lot of fun. And if you're having fun, follow us at the Aqua Cave. Leave a review. Write something negative about me that's funny. And uh, maybe I'll read it on the air so everyone can enjoy it. Follow me on Twitter at C. And folks, stay safe. Don't accidentally blow off a limb trying to celebrate the quote-unquote independence of your nation this weekend. And remember, when it is Independence Day weekend, try to live and abide by these immortal words from former President Thomas Whitmore. Doesn't anyone have any missus left? Which is my absolute favorite quote from the awful movie Independence Day that does suck. But try to use that phrase in a sentence during this Independence Day holiday weekend. For example, you go open the fridge, you find there are no cans of your favorite beverage, and yell aloud to anyone within earshot, doesn't anyone have any missiles left? They may not understand the context at first, but once you explain it to your listening audience, I'm sure they will at least provide a polite chuckle stay with us for the future of starman featuring negative two star ranked matches and this is johnny c saying keep reaching for the stars man that's good shit pal i'm a motherfucking star boy huh?